Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Caroline, this week is the much-anticipated uh, third part, third and final part of our Salem Witch Trials uh, series. Isn't that right? Sure is, yeah. As our listeners may remember, in the last two parts, we set up both kind of the tensions around the town and village of Salem in the year 1692, and the lives of the people who uh, who were beginning to be swept up in this hysteria as it kind of uh, took over. Certainly, if you haven't heard the first two parts of the series, you probably should uh, go back and brush up. Um, but uh, carry a real quick refresher for our listeners of, of uh, where we are right now. Yeah, well, we left off last time at the end of the initial interrogations after seeing a lot of the arrests made and the trials are set to begin. So here we are with the first trial. Now, they didn't go in order of arrests for whatever reason. I don't know their logic here. So that means the first trial in the court of Oyer and Terminer is that of Bridget Bishop. Oh, were they going in alphabetical order? Like, Maybe let's, initially, let's, but let's not... Let's keep things simple. We'll go in alphabetical order. <laughs> not, a, not as it goes on. So I'm not sure what their deal was. Um, as before, one of our main sources today is the book A Storm of Witchcraft by Emerson Baker, and for this episode in particular, I'm also going to be utilizing historyofmassachusetts.org, which is a really good site, and it contains comprehensive coverage of each of the individual trials. Poor Caroline has been hip deep <laughs> in dead witches for a month now. Yeah, which is the same as usual, I guess. Now, before we get into this week's episode, I just want to remind y'all that this series is brought to you by ThingsToDoInSalem.com, your one-stop shop for planning any visit to the Witch City. Hopefully after this series, you'll be dying to go. <laughs> but one person who I'm sure wish they could have escaped the Salem area was Bridget Bishop. Oh, so this isn't going well for her, is what you're saying? No. If you remember from last episode, Bishop was about 60 and had been tried for witchcraft before sometime around 1679. Because she was a cool, groovy lady. <laughs> well, on suspicion of bewitching her second husband to death. So, however cool and groovy that is, I guess. Pretty gro pretty groovy. <laughs> but wasn't Bridget like a free spirit who was, people didn't like her because she wore bright colored clothing and stuff too? Well, okay, so on June 2nd, 1692, she was the first to be brought to trial during the Salem witchcraft hysteria. Now, remember, we had gone through the examination, so these are the preliminary hearings. That's kind of what we covered mostly last episode. These are the actual trials where they're going to get sentenced. This was not Bishop's first time on trial, along with her first witch trial. She had also gone to court for fighting with that aforementioned second husband, where they were both ordered to pay a fine or be whipped. Uh, how, do we know how bad the fight was? Like, are we talking about a physical altercation? I think so, yeah. And she again went to court for swearing at that same husband and had also been brought to trial in 1687 for stealing brass from the local mill owner. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is a groovy, a groovy chick. <laughs> Though Bishop protested that she hadn't stolen the brass, she had sent her daughter to town with it. But to ask people who had put it on her property, she said, not find a buyer for it. 
so she was like, hey, we found this brass. I, I, yeah. I need to find the original owner. Uh, I it's don't know. a little fishy, I for sure. Uh, there are no surviving records of the outcome of this trial, so we don't know what happened with the brass. <laughs> now, as you mentioned, she is kind of known as being a groovy lady, and we've mentioned her as a tavern owner previously, but there seems to be an asterisk on this part of her history. It, it seems that in some earlier histories, she was conflated with her stepdaughter-in-law, Sarah Bishop, who was also accused of witchcraft, and who lived just outside of Salem Village and owned a tavern. Oh. It's not exactly known what Bishop was really up to in this time, but her husband, I think this was her third, was a woodcutter, so they probably didn't run taverns together, because he had his own business. Right. Um... Yeah, so, I mean... So she just had a groovy daughter? (laughs) Maybe. I did want to bring this up because to this day, it's still part of the popular history surrounding her, as you mentioned. Even on some of the modern-day ghost tours that mention her, she's usually talked about as a tavern owner. She did live in what is now downtown Salem. uh, That's then Salem Town. And she also owned an apple orchard, which is a correct bit of info about her that ghost tours will also mention, uh, for reasons I might go into later. Didn't Proctor run a tavern, too? It's, he he did. He actually did. Him it, and Elizabeth, yes. It's surprising there's, like, more than one tavern <laughs> in this tiny town. I guess. Um, there were many people who testified at Bridget's trial, and she, of course, pled not guilty. But one of these was John Louder, who told the judges that eight years before, he had been staying with Bishop's neighbor, John Gedney, who would often argue with her about how she let her chickens wander into his apple orchard. Well, that's witchery, (laughs) obviously, if if I've ever heard it. Well, Louder said that Bishop Specter would attack him at night in bed, and when he brought this up to Bishop, must have been a hell of a conversation... Uh, She threatened him and sent black pigs and a talking monkey after him to torment him. Presumably her witchy familiars. Uh, Please tell me he (laughs) produced some kind of a monkey that could talk, because this case would go into, you know, some pretty fun farcical (laughs) territory pretty quick. Well, he did say he saw this weird monkey creature again after this, which he described as having a cock's feet and a face more like a man's than a monkey. And he saw this flying around in Bishop's orchard. No, uh, no corrob- I'm guessing there's no corroboration on the old... No, he didn't produce an actual talking monkey in court. chicken monkey. <laughs> Samuel Gray, a 42-year-old Salem resident, testified that 14 years earlier, Bishop had bewitched his child to death. Her specter had apparently appeared over his child's crib... The baby screamed as if in pain, which made the spirit disappear. But after this, the baby, who had been fine, wasted away and died a few months later. And around this time, he saw Bishop again in town. So he had seen the specter. Then he sees Bishop in town and he recognizes her because he hadn't ever seen her before. So he didn't recognize the specter when he saw it. And so he recognizes her as the woman who must have killed his baby. And apparently this child wasn't the only one that Bishop allegedly witched to death because one of the afflicted girls, Susanna Sheldon, said that she had seen the spirits of twin boys who had told her that the woman had killed her with witchcraft. So now we're admitting the testimony of ghosts? 
Yes, this Second is called hand. <laughs> secondhand ghost testimony. Spectral, spectral evidence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Bishop Spector also had allegedly told Sheldon straight up that she'd killed four women previously, which seems like dumb information to share. And what was the thing with her husband? I definitely, this is either from one of those ghost tours or um, from that Cry Innocent show they do in the um, old town hall. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I, I remember hearing at some point that her previous husband, before she moved to Salem, had fallen off a roof, like, while repairing it. And people said that she, like, you know, wiggled her fingers at him before he fell or something. Yeah, the thing was that I, I didn't note the way he died, but the original accusation was that she had witched him to death, whether it's accident or illness or whatever. A couple married couples testified about weird business transactions they'd allegedly had with Bishop, like buying a so-called bewitched pig from her and having found poppets. These are witchy dolls hidden in the walls of her cellar while contracted to do some construction work on her home. The afflicted girls, of course, went to work on their theatrics, immediately collapsing whenever Bridget would look upon them, only to be suddenly revived if they if she was touch if she touched them. So it was like I don't know, it was dumb. And they will do this throughout Yeah. All I mean they've already been doing it the whole time and they will continue throughout the whole trials. Mm-hmm. And Putnam stated Bishop called the devil her god and other girls accused Bishop of harming them. Worst of all, much like Giles Corey and his wife, Bishop's husband, too, alleged that Bridget had praised the devil. So this is her third husband. But it's all... Wait, her current husband? Her current husband, yeah. There are no men in this town standing by their women. Not a lot of them. John, have, John Proctor was one of them, and, and we'll didn't get work to out, him. <laughs> didn't work out well for him already. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But, but Giles Corey, yeah, see, he hands his wife over, and he's doing fine so far, right? We'll get there. <laughs> also on June 2nd, Bishop, along with Elizabeth Proctor, Rebecca Nurse, Alice Parker, Susanna Martin, and Sarah Good underwent physical examination by nine local women and a doctor named Barton, who were looking for so-called witches' marks. Yes, so this is the part where if you have a birthmark... Mm-hmm. Near your groin, like it's the it's the <laughs> devil's kiss. Yeah, these marks are some of the most egregious evidence used during the witch trials, and that's certainly saying something, considering all the bullshit we've heard thus far. I don't know if it's as egregious as literally just hearsay, which is what I, most of the evidence is. And most people have weird birthmarks. <laughs> or any birthmarks. If you're familiar with the movie The Omen, Damien's 666 mark on his scalp seems to be kind of a take on the mythology behind these. That's a much more impressive birthmark well, sure. than most of these, though. According to the medical paper, Roll of Skin Lesions in the Salem Witch Trials, which is a real study that I read. Wow, that sounds <laughs> fun and gross. <laughs> yeah, so gross. Definitely gross. A witch's mark or devil's mark could be a variety of skin lesions described as flat or raised, red, blue, or brown, sometimes with unusual outlines. These were most probably supernumerary nipples. Oh, and like it- <laughs> um, like uh, Scaramanga, the man with the golden gun. Yeah, or Mark Wahlberg. Or Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Uh, 
it was believed that familiars, and these are the agents of the devil, usually in animal form, would receive sustenance by suckling these areas. And these are like the marks that they suckled. Sure. Sure. Classic, uh, classic impetite. So if you have a birthmark, mole, or a scar, you could be tried for being a witch in 1692. It's that simple. And most people don't have bodies worth of skin devoid of any discoloration at all. No, including presumably the people doing these examinations, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Bishop and Proctor were cleared after long examination of having any witch marks, though it was noted that, quote, Bishop, Nurse, and Proctor, by diligent search, have discovered a preternatural excrescence of flesh between the pudendum, which is the genitals, and the anus, much like to teats and not usual in women, and much like much unlike to the other three that hath been searched by us, and that they were all in the three women near the same place. God, I love the <laughs> amount of extra words in any writing yes. from this time. But they're so, definitely trying to get it to a word count in their essay. So, if I heard that correctly, all three of these ladies had little bumpies on their taint. Yes. <laughs> Uh, these examinations, as you can see, were humiliating and all of that for them to eventually conclude that this extra flesh was like dry taint skin. <laughs> it's funny, but it's also horrible, right? Yes. But was the dried, <laughs> was this extra flesh uh, used as, as evidence now? Basically, they found it and they poked and prodded at it a lot. And decided not a witch mark? Not a witch mark. Okay. So, but no, we better, no evidence of but witch marks. do enter it into the report, certainly. Of course. We need to humiliate these women, of course. So it wasn't enough good news that these weren't By witch's way, marks. I, I don't even want my doctor looking too hard there. <laughs> uh, Bridget Bishop's trial ended the same day it began. It e easy to do when the defendant isn't allowed any counsel, which she wasn't. Uh, Cotton Mather, Puritan minister, son of Increase Mather and General Douchebag that we've mentioned before, had the most oxymoronic summation of the trial ever when he wrote, quote, There was little occasion to prove the witchcraft, it being evident and notorious to all beholders. So we didn't have to prove it because it was obvious. And like kind of implying also a... Um exactly the kind of trial of public sentiment that they like the whole thing with the legal system today is yeah. uh, uh, keeping juries away from the press and all that stuff. Yeah, I wonder if this influenced that. Hmm. Probably not. Do people know this story? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah. So the evidence um, that he was referring to that made it so obvious of the guilt was the spectral evidence offered by both Bishop's enemies and the afflicted girls. Spectral evidence, which, by the way, he had argued against the use of in previous trials. But don't worry, the guy wasn't logical. He had been involved in the witchcraft trial and execution of Boston, Boston native Anne Glover in 1688, so he seemed to be okay with spectral evidence in this case. And um, we quoted Cotton Mather in, I think, our Werewolves episode? We've quoted him before. He's he's just, like I said, he's a general douchebag that turns up in a lot of this old America stuff. Yeah. Well, he was a, he was a religious leader at a time when religious leadership still meant being scared of uh, werewolves and killing witches occasionally. Mm -hmm. 
The court, now made up of Chief Justice William Stoughton, Jonathan Corwin, John Hawthorne, Bartholomew Gedney, John Richards, Nathaniel Saltonstall, Peter Sargent, Samuel Sewell, and Wait Still Winthrop, convicted Bridget Bishop of witchcraft and issued her death warrant on June 8th. Now, by the way, an actual jury did figure into the sentencing equation, but considering the list of names I'm finding, uh, which are all of landowning men, it was far from a jury of Bishop's peers anyway. Well, sure, they weren't going to have like a, ju- what, a jury of women? <laughs> that would be a peer, yes. <laughs> Bishop was the first sentenced to die in the trials, and this sent a shockwave through the town, a kind of feeling like, wow, we're really doing this, huh? But the full magnitude of the situation wouldn't quite hit until June 10th, the day that Bridget Bishop was taken to the gallows to be hanged. There isn't much in the way of eyewitness documentation of the hangings, perhaps because some of those present later regretted their compliance with the executions. Yeah, I I could uh, see that. (laughs) As far as we know, on June 10th, Sheriff George Corwin took her from jail to Gallows Hill, where she was executed. And again, just like her trial, she was alone. She displayed no remorse for witchcraft, instead continuing to profess her innocence, but it didn't matter. She was hanged and, of course, died. Alone, but... Well, there were was there pretty, was an audience, but yeah. there weren't any other people being executed with her. Probably all of these were pretty well attended, right? There were definitely a couple handfuls of people, at least, but I don't think it was like a huge, massive spectacle. I don't know if that was allowed... Because again, there doesn't seem too much like fun. Yeah, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of um, recording of what went on. I mean, there's like one or two testimonies. So you would think if it's like the whole town, there would be more people writing down things in their diaries or whatever. Yeah, I wonder if some of that stuff was destroyed after that. I mean, you kind of alluded to that, right? Like, oh, this wasn't cool. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, for a while, there, you weren't allowed to publish anything about the witch trials afterward, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, it was illegal <laughs> for a while. The victims of the trials weren't allowed to have burials and consecrated land, being presumed witches. So Bridget was likely thrown in a shallow grave on or near Gallows Hill, unless family members of hers were able to secret the body away in the dead of night but this is unlikely since her husband had flipped on her and her stepson and stepdaughter-in-law were in prison. Well, they were until they escaped and hid and their property was seized, but eventually that would all get figured out. Oh, well, good for them. Yeah. After the execution, court took a short recess and new accusations did slow down for a time. Like I said, it seems like there was a bit of a reckoning once the shit got real. Nathaniel Saltonstall, one of the judges, even resigned at this point, and though he didn't state publicly why, it was presumed that he was displeased with the handling of the Bishop case and very much dissatisfied with the proceedings. And I'm sure these teenage girls will now figure out that that this is not a game that they're playing and uh, that real people are getting hurt and they'll uh, amend their ways. Oh, I'm sorry, they're teenage girls. Continue. <laughs> You're more optimistic than me, Sean. Sultan Saul would be the only one on the court who would have that crisis of conscience at this point. Governor William Phipps began to have doubts about the court's methods and went to Boston to consult their ministers as to, as to what should be done with the rest of the accused witches languishing in jail. 
But unfortunately, these... He's like, guys, we can't do this like three dozen times. Well, that's I guess. But unfortunately, these ministers weren't concerned but invigorated by the first execution and earnestly recommended that the proceedings should be vigorously carried on. And so they were, albeit a month after Bishop's death. He's like, you guys, stuff's getting out of control down there. They just they just killed this woman who they said was a witch. They're like, <laughs> yeah. they killed a witch? Isn't that great? Within this month, uh, Roger Toothaker would die in prison, another victim that never made it to the gallows. He wouldn't be the only one. But at the end of June, the next major trial would occur. And this time, and I think every time after, multiple people were tried on the same day. Rebecca Nurse, Susanna Martin, Sarah Wilds, Sarah Good, and Elizabeth Howe faced the court of Oyer and Terminer on June 29th and 30th, 1692. Along with the petition signed by many friends of the nurses that I mentioned last episode, the nurse family also went to work soliciting testimony questioning the veracity of Rebecca's accusers. Did, uh, did she have a lawyer? Well, her family was well-off, well-known, well-connected, and they had the means to do this. Um, I don't think any of them were allowed counsel, like I mentioned, which is very illegal nowadays yeah, yep. for obvious reasons. Um, Not but that... she had the best that she could do. I mean, how much is a lawyer going to help you anyway when it's like, and then a ghost told me that she poked a cow in the back and then it died. Yeah, there's only so much you could do about that. Um the family was really determined to get Rebecca out of this mess, and they almost had the resources to do so. But, however, aside from the spectral evidence provided by the afflicted girls, the court also had Surgeon John Barton and his female assistant's testimony that they had found a witch's teat on Rebecca. Mm, a Wahlberg. Yeah. Her examination hadn't gone as flawlessly as Bridget Bishop or Elizabeth Proctor's, but, again, Rebecca was old. So it was probably just a bit of flabby skin or a weird mole. A varicose vein. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps due to the insistence of her prominent family, surprisingly, the court did initially return with a verdict of not guilty. But it didn't stick. At this point, the girls absolutely flipped out, pushing the judges to feel Rebecca should be retried then and there due to the afflictions occurring during that very moment. Oh my God. Yeah. So not guilty. Uh, just imagine someone saying not guilty in a court nowadays and then someone like fainting in the court and being like, oh, well, we should retry him now. Again, I, I think kids do a lot of dumb things that they wouldn't do if they had a little, little more, couple more years and some more wisdom and, and the things they might regret. Uh, heavily down down the road. But why are all these adults taking these children seriously? I don't know. Chief Justice Stoughton apparently coaxed the jury to reconsider, pointing out that Nurse had remarked that another accused witch, Del Deliverance Hobbs, was of her company. Stoughton felt that this had been a, a slip, meaning that both of the women had signed a pact with the devil. But unfortunately, it wasn't. Uh, Rebecca later told her children that she was referring to Hobbes as a fellow accused witch, not a member of some devil's coven with her. The jury foreman asked her to explain, but she remained silent, which was taken to be a wordless admission of guilt. Oh, classic. Your classic wordless <sighs> confessions. 
Yeah, unfortunately for Rebecca, she was just pretty deaf and hadn't heard the question. But she was found guilty. Uh, The nurse family filed a complaint stating that she was deaf. And according to the jury foreman, her silence was the principal evidence for her guilt. This was compelling enough that it prompted Governor Phipps to issue a reprieve, which he soon rescinded due to complaints from the afflicted and pressure from an unnamed Salem gentleman. Their dad. Could be Thomas Putnam. He comes up quite a lot in this episode. Days later, the Salem Town Church that Rebecca so loved voted in her presence to formally excommunicate her. She was sentenced to die, as Bishop did on Gallows Hill. Sarah Wilds and Elizabeth Howe were two Topsfield, Massachusetts women with the specter of witchcraft having long hung over them. Both were handily convicted in court and sentenced to death the same day. The specter had long hung over them, meaning rumors in town of previous accusations before they came here. And we talked about that a little bit last episode. But yeah, if you get accused or anyone in your family, like immediate family gets accused, it's going to linger around you. And that comes up again and again in this, uh, starting with Bridget Bishop. Well, it makes sense that hearsay and rumor would be a dangerous thing here because hearsay and rumor is the like only thing that any of this is based on. 100%, yeah. Susanna Martin, too, had been accused of witchcraft back in 1669, and Salem Village inhabitants such as Joseph and Jarvis Ring accused her of trying to recruit them into witchcraft. According to another man, John Allen, she had also bewitched his oxen and drove them into a river where they drowned. So to me, that just sounds like a shitty oxen owner, but what do I know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if... if um. If your oxen get out and drown in a river, that's on you, John. It's also like, what? All these spells to do different things. It's like, how does the witch choose? Oh, these oxen I'm going to poison and they'll just die. These ones will uh, not produce milk or whatever. Uh, These ones I'm going to send into a river. You know, got to keep it interesting, I guess. This husband I'm knocking off the roof. This baby is just going to waste away. I guess it's tougher to get a baby on a roof. During Susanna's part of the trial, she pled not guilty, but multiple of the girls furthered the accusations against her, with Abigail Williams saying, she hath hurt me often, and Ann Putnam Jr. throwing a glove at her in a fit. Nonetheless, Martin was able to quote the Bible to perfection, which you may recall is something it was believed a real witch wouldn't be able to do. Home free. Of course, there was always an excuse for this, and this will come up again, too. Cotton Mather himself stated that the devil's servants were capable of, quote, putting on a show of perfect innocence and godliness. So, in which case, why had that been a rule of witch hunting at all? <laughs> why? Yeah, well, certainly, why do the test if afterward you're just going to go, yeah, but still. Yeah, exactly. No particular legion had been found on Susanna Martin during her examination for a witch's mark, but it was noted that, quote, in the morning her nipples were found to be full as if the milk would come, but by late afternoon her breasts were slack as if milk had already been given to someone or something. Someone's getting too personal with her breasts. Oh, too much, yeah. This supposedly meant that she had somehow been visited by her familiar and given it sustenance 
with breast milk, I guess. Sure. So there's just like a monkey with chicken feet crawling in through the window. <laughs> I mean, as he, like the whole affair had been taken, taken on like a feeling of perversity. You have to wonder whether these examiners were getting their Puritan kicks out of poking and prodding at these women's private parts. I don't have to wonder. They definitely were. Martin. This is um, doctors in the 1940s with hysteria treatments. Yeah. Martin, too, was found guilty and sentenced to hang. That left Sarah good. And if you think this homeless, disliked woman would be spared the noose, think again. I, I didn't. <laughs> Sarah was one of the first three women to be accused of witchcraft during the hysteria and the only one to make it to trial. Good had been pregnant when she was jailed and gave birth in prison to a son, but unsurprisingly, in the terrible conditions of the jail, the baby died before she made it to the trial. So does she, I mean, I don't know. I guess I know back then you you had like 17 kids because you knew like 14 of them were going to die. Um, but still, does she even care at this point? This She's been through some, some horrors. I don't know. It might be. It must be terrible to lose a, a child, yeah. but I, I can't get into her mind. No, I don't mean. Does she care about losing the kid? Does she care when she get? If she's lost the kid in jail, does she care when she gets to the trial? Or is this so horrible oh, at this point? That I don't know. Sarah did try to throw Sarah Osborne, who had already died in prison, and Tichuba under the bus by saying they were the real witches. Oh, so she does still care. Ah, uh, dinner, no good. Several of the girls accused Good of appearing to them in her specter form, along with her deceased child, torturing them and causing them fits. I love, it's, it is classy. It's a classy move to bring the dead baby into it and accuse it also it's of a, being a witch. It's a weird move because Sarah Good's daughter, Dorcas, Dorothy, oh, Dorcas. Poor Dorcas. She was in prison, this four-year-old child, for being a witch. So why not just say it's her? but I'm pretty sure it was just the baby. Sarah Bibber, who was 36 years old, testified that she'd seen Good Spectre torture both Mercy Lewis and John Indian and had tried to suffocate her and her child. Sounds like she was more of a Sarah Fibber. I was going to say Sarah bad. Yeah. The list really went on, perhaps, um... As the opposite of Rebecca Nurse on Salem's respectability scale, Good was really the easiest for the jury to convict. There was like a petition going around like, hang her! Hang her faster! <laughs> All of these women tried on these two days were hanged at Gallows Hill on July 19th, 1692. Though most of them faced death quietly, with Nurse in particular being described as a woman of self-dignity with a resolute bearing on the gallows, Good continued to loudly proclaim her innocence. Salem Town Reverend Nicholas Noyes attempted to get her to confess to witchcraft so she would not die a liar. Good responded, quote, You are a liar. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard, and if you take away my life... God will give you blood to drink, referring to a passage in the book of Revelation. Strangely and fittingly, Noyes would die years later of an internal hemorrhage, which left him to choke to death on his own blood. Perhaps Sarah Good had knowledge of curses after all. Ooh, chills down your spine. <laughs> that is a Salem ghost tour classic. And again, that's not the only one. Uh, we'll get into that with Giles Corey. Oh, yeah. 
The rest of the execution went on without incident, and all of the women were murdered. Yes, they were murdered. There was no justice here, so that's really the only word that fits. As I mentioned, they were all buried in shallow graves near the execution spot, but Rebecca Nurse's family in particular returned after dark to retrieve her body, at least according to oral tradition. If anyone had the means to carry out the nighttime heist, it would be them, so... The story goes that they buried Rebecca on the property of the family homestead, and though her exact resting place has never been confirmed publicly, there was a tall granite memorial erected in 1885 at the Rebecca Nurse Homestead Cemetery. The inscription reads, Rebecca Nurse, Yarmouth, England, 1621, Salem, Mass, 1692. O Christian martyr who for truth could die when all about thee owned the hideous lie. The world redeemed from superstition's sway is breathing freer for thy sake today. The next, ba- the next batch of trials was on August 5th, 1692, when George Jacob Sr., Martha Carrier, John Willard, John and Elizabeth Proctor, and Reverend George Burroughs were tried. Unfortunately, spoiler alert here, all of these people would be convicted and only one would escape the gallows. <sighs> And these are some of the big names, too. The big Proctors names. here. Mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis. And again, these are big names, mostly because of the Crucible. Um, and there's a lot of material on them. We'll get to people later where there's barely any records, but they were killed. So so despite this execution being the climax of that show, um, it's... What? It's near the beginning. Yeah, it's kind of oh, not even at the halfway point of the trials here. Mm-hmm. Jacobs had originally been accused by his servant, Sarah Churchill, along with his own granddaughter, Margaret, who had also been arrested. Churchill testified against him again during the trial, along with his neighbor, John DeRich, who happened to also be a nephew of Elizabeth Proctor. You would hope that he would have been sympathetic to the situation, but no. A dozen people total testified against George Jacobs, including Abigail Williams and Thomas and John Putnam. The women accused weren't the only ones forced to submit to a humiliating physical examination. George Herrick testified that he found a suspicious mark, which he described as a teat, about a quarter of an inch long, on Jacob's right shoulder, and when it was pricked with a pin, it did not bleed. A bloodless Wahlberg? (laughs) Well, again, Jacob's was elderly, so it was probably just a bit of, like, weird skin. Skin Because he's old, you know? Like, ugh. Another particularly ageist accusation leveled at Jacobs was that he appeared in spectral form and beat the girls with his walking canes, which in real life he used for his terrible arthritis. Right, of course. This guy is like, um, if there was a Home Alone 3 that still had Macaulay Culkin in it, uh, this guy would be the scary old person yes. on the fringes who at the end it's like, oh, he just he doesn't use the canes to beat people. He just yeah. uh, needs them to uh, to get to the store to buy milk. Oh, that's not a weird teat. That's just some skin. Oh, he like he's estranged from his family or whatever. It's sad. Martha Carrier was uh, accused by a fellow suspected witch, Anne Foster, of having become a witch years before and bringing Anne to witch meetings at Salem Village on a flying stick, some sort of Satan's Uber, I would assume. Was the um, is the maybe you maybe you don't have this answer and that's okay. 
was the broom added later into like the the witch popular culture image or uh, do these witches ride around on brooms sometimes? Yeah, I think the flying stick is a broom. I mean, it's something that they would have had around and loose, you know? A lot of loose brooms <laughs> well, in Salem. You know, uh, versus something like a chair, which is a little bit more unwieldy. Ointment chair. Don't forget the ointment. Can't forget the ointment chair. Listen to that werewolves episode. <laughs> Foster also said Carrier had bewitched a child to death a few years ago, and there were a total of 305 witches in the country, and that they'd set up shop in the Salem area to create the Devil's Kingdom. This, like Tichuba at the beginning of the examinations themselves, kicked off the hysteria spreading to nearby Andover and jump-started a series of accusations further out in Essex County. Hmm. Carrier seemed to have become a convenient scapegoat for accused witches during their preliminary hearings because Anne Foster's granddaughter, Mary Lacey Jr., also said that Martha Carrier was a witch, elaborating that she would kill children by stabbing them in the heart with pins and needles, and, quote, Goody Carrier told me the devil said to her she would be queen in hell, which otherwise would be a bitchin' title to have, but, uh... Not not here so much. Once it's clear the afflicted girls are focusing on someone and a couple other accused people are dropping it's accusations the same stuff on them. over and over and over. But if you're someone who's now your feet are to the fire, it's like, well, Martha Carrier's fucked already. Gotta throw it off somehow, yeah. If I'm gonna throw somebody under the bus, Martha's already, uh, yeah, she she pulled the skin off my back, whatever, whatever you need. Yeah, she pulled my brains out through my nose. Others who accused Martha Carrier would be her niece, Martha Emerson, and own sons, Richard and Andrew, who had all been jailed for witchcraft and likely subjected to tortures to make them confess, according to a letter sent to Boston clergy by John Proctor from prison. A neighbor stated during the trial that she had used threatening words against him seven years prior during a disagreement, and that shortly after that, two of his pigs had uh, also been killed. And his cow stopped giving milk that summer. So, you know. They always say had been killed, but, but they, they mean like they just died, right? or something, yeah. Like, even if it's, like, mauled by a, a wild wolf. Like, yeah, you're in friggin' Massachusetts in 1692. Shit happens. You guys came here. <laughs> you guys moved here. You wanted this. Another person proclaimed that Carrier had bewitched his cows to death. So, <laughs> I, you know, it's also like, why would that be your target if you're gonna witch someone's livestock to death? Because this is their livelihood too. Yeah, but why don't you just kill them directly? I don't know. Get it's, them up on a roof. It's messing with them, I guess. There were plenty of people who went against Martha Carrier, and she was found guilty and sentenced to death. Within the week, her 10-year-old son, Thomas Jr., and 8-year-old daughter, Sarah, had been arrested for witchcraft and coerced into confessions, including that their mother had forced them to sign the devil's book. During the first allegations in the Salem Witch Trials, John Willard had been a constable. Coerced into confessions how? Torture, probably. Or, like, these were literal children, so... They could just McMartin to them. Yeah. So during the first allegations in the Salem Witch Trials, John Willard had been a constable whose duties included arresting the accused and bringing them to court. 
He was initially zealous about the job, proclaiming, hang them, they are all witches. But he soon lost his taste for it and refused to be a part of any more arrests starting in May of 1692. He's like, um, did I I say all? Did I say they're all witches? (laughs) Likely as a direct result of him backing out, kind of like the instant retaliation to Mary Warren accusing the girls of lying. Ann Putnam Jr. and the other afflicted girls turned their accusations onto Willard, saying he'd murdered 13 people in the service of Satan and that he'd tried to get them to touch the devil's book. Which is kind of funny because this isn't even about like signing it. It's just, just touch, it. touch it. You want to touch it? Just touch it. Come on. <laughs> Come on. It's weird. It feels weird. <laughs> Most... um, did, they, they, did they specify what 13 people he'd killed? I don't believe so. Or if they did, it, it's not noted. You just would think a prolific serial killer in, in a small village would... Um... <laughs> it, they probably did, but a lot of the testimony is kind of summed up rather than direct quotes like in the examinations. I'm not sure why. I think Deodat Lawson was around for the examinations and took better notes. It's <laughs> probably it. Most damningly, some of John Willard's in-laws came out against him, with one telling the court that Willard had beat his wife and others blaming his specter for abuse and murder. This is why you you keep your in-laws happy. This is why you 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 just be good, nice. Just be good. Well, just be a good boy. Yeah, it's not even that though. Like Willard's in-laws already despised him because he bought up land in what they viewed as their Salem village and sold plots of it to outsiders. Like, it wasn't anything terrible he did. He, he bought land and sold it. And it's exactly the same kind of thing that would piss off any Salem village person at any Salem town person. Mm-hmm. No devil's mark was found on Willard or John Proctor, for that matter, with uh, over a dozen people testifying against him, the court didn't need a suspicious teat to find Willard guilty, so they did. (laughs) So they did. So they did. Next were the Proctors. Mary Warren, now firmly back on the side of the accusing girls, followed the lead set by John Willard's trial and also came out saying her employer, John Proctor, had beaten her and forced her to touch and sign the devil's book. Okay, so first touch it, then sign it? Mm -hmm. Is that the order we're going in? I guess so. It wasn't just spectral evidence used against Proctor, though, because he was already a divisive figure in town, as we talked about last episode. He appears to have believed himself to be right much of the time, and his own words were thrown back at him again and again, as with his threatening to or actually admitting to beating several people involved in the witch trials, like the aforementioned servant Mary Warren, when he tried to like beat the devil out of her. Yeah. But he seemed to he seemed to be one of those guys that's like, I know I'm right, so you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't know anyone like that. Yeah, I wonder what that feels like to have your words thrown back in your face. That's <laughs> yeah, it's gotta sting. That's tough. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> As we mentioned previously, Proctor wrote a letter to Boston clergymen begging them to appoint different judges or move the trials to Boston. And though this prompted them to rule against allowing spectral evidence in the trials it didn't help save Proctor's life. John's wife, Elizabeth, was accused generally in tandem with her husband, as in Mary Warren's deposition, where she said that both of them would send their spirits out to torture her at night. 
But initially, she was accused first, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Both proctors were found guilty and sentenced to death, but since Elizabeth was provably pregnant by this time, her execution was postponed until after she gave birth. Oh, that's kind. I guess. What are you going to do with the baby? You're executing both of its parents. It's almost like they're not pro-life. Interesting. Lastly, there was Reverend George Burroughs. They just threw a newborn baby in jail. And it died. It's almost like they're not pro-life. So Reverend George Burroughs, he had been brought up as the big bad of this whole situation by the afflicted girls. And then they had gone to Maine to arrest him and bring him back to Salem. A whopping 30 people testified against him at his trial, including many of the afflicted girls and three of the elders in the Putnam family. Now this is because he didn't work out as a as a minister. They're like your big city, your city slicking ways. I think part of it is that um, many of the witnesses claimed that Burroughs consistently demonstrated a superhuman strength, ah! <laughs> including incidents where he claimed to have carried heavy barrels of cider by himself. Though he apparently never wanted to recreate these events. There was a pickle jar like like six of us couldn't get the lid off. And then he just, he, he hardly even twisted it. It popped right off. He didn't even use the rubber thing. It also kind of screams like, I can bench 300 to me. You know, like him bragging that he could lift the cider. But then when someone like says, go lift that cider over there. He's like, oh, nah. I've, I, I've li- I, I think I've list- lifted enough cider. <laughs> There were also more accusations hurled about Burroughs having been abusive in different ways to his since-deceased wives, which in all likelihood was true, but not exactly a sign of witchcraft, especially in those days where wives were more like property. Yeah, it sounds like a sign of being a man in 1692, right? (laughs) Susanna Sheldon testified that Burroughs' specter had come to her and confessed that he'd killed three children in Maine, along with his first two wives, by smothering the first and choking the second, and had killed two of his children. So apparently, Burroughs' spirit had been very chatty, and with several people, too, because Ann Putnam Jr. also testified that spirits of Reverend Deodat Lawson's wife, Lawson being the minister after or before Burroughs, one or the other, um, this spirit and her child came to her and had told her that Burroughs had murdered them. They're big accusations, but based purely on spectral evidence and not at all on physical proof. Yeah, all these people were at least actually dead, though? Yes. That's a suspicious trail of dead bodies behind Burroughs. Not really, though. Everyone's wives and kids died. Oh, yeah, and he came from, like, war-torn Maine, right? Yeah, exactly. Weirdly, three of the afflicted girls' testimonies contain the same exact line. Quote, I believe in my heart that Mr. George Burroughs is a dreadful wizard and that he had often afflicted and tormented me and the aforementioned persons by his acts of witchcraft. They use the same words. The Lord speaks through them. (laughs) Well, according to a recent handwriting analysis by University of Kansas professor Peter Grund, the testimonies were all written by Putnam family patriarch Thomas Putnam, who himself testified against Burroughs with similar language. And 
nobody noticed at the time that the handwriting was that of an adult man on all of the... Well, okay. So it does make sense that someone else wrote out the testimonies because the girls probably know how to read but not to write. But it is interesting that he fudged them quite a bit. Well, it sounds like he just wrote the same thing six times and mm-hmm. then had them sign it. Yeah. This is uh, George Adamski with his first <laughs> uh, UFO encounter when all the people signed the paper that said, "We, yeah, we saw George meet a UFO. Sure, but no one died there. So That we know of. A little different. As one of the major landowners in Salem Village and part of the family to which Burroughs had owed a financial debt... Perhaps Thomas Putnam had some stake in eliminating the former reverend once and for all and wanted to add some zhuzh to the girls' testimonies. A little zhuzh. Sure, zhuzh sure. it up. Yeah, it needs spice. As you can probably imagine, this all went very badly for Burroughs, especially alongside the facts that he had failed to baptize his youngest children or even to attend communion for quite a while. He was clearly a lapsed reverend, and perhaps his faith wasn't as strong as it once was, and this looked damning for him. He was, of course, sentenced to death, the only minister to be so in American history. Yeah, that'll bring his, that'll bring your faith back. The only minister to be sentenced to death for witchcraft or period? Not clear, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's period. I would. That seems crazy, no. but I, I believe you. Well, I don't know if I believe me. It's it's one of one of those. <laughs> the entire group, sans the pregnant Elizabeth Proctor, were brought to Gallows Hill to be executed on August 19th, 1692. The most intense part of the day came when George Burroughs made a speech declaring his innocence and then recited the Lord's Prayer without error as he stood on the gallows in front of the crowd. Well, we know that doesn't mean that doesn't mean shit. Cotton Mather is standing there going, "Well, remember that the other thing I said." Yeah, as we mentioned, this was something that a suspected witch was assumed not to be able to do, and yet Burroughs did it. However, the crowd and judges again managed to get around this, too. Robert Califf described the event in the book More Wonders of the Invisible World. Quote, It was very affecting and drew tears from many, so that it seemed to some that the spectators would hinder the execution. Wow. However... It was stated that the devil must have been dictating it to him, as we've also mentioned before. Uh, and so it's it was reason that witches could pretend, too. Burroughs was hanged first, despite all of this, which probably stunned much of the crowd, who, again, had known him as their own minister. They put him here. Yeah, but it's, it's real when someone's choking to death in front of you. Caliph continued, quote, Cotton Mather, being mounted upon a horse, addressed himself to the people, partly to declare that Burroughs was no ordained minister, and partly to possess the people of his guilt, saying the devil has often been transformed into an angel of the light, and this somewhat appeased the people, and the executions went on. Sitting on a horse. What an asshole. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Mather's encouragement, the rest were executed. And since there was a heat wave during this time, the bodies were buried immediately in a mass shallow grave to prevent rotting. But it's said that the grave was so shallow that Burroughs' chin and one of his feet were left uncovered. There's your minister, folks. We'll cover more of the trials when we come back after the break. George, why didn't you stay in Maine? 
This series is sponsored by ThingsToDoInSalem.com. After learning all about the Salem witch trials during this two-parter, you may find yourself hankering to visit the witch city and experience Salem for yourself. When planning your trip, your first visit should be ThingsToDoInSalem.com. Created by Salem expert Elise Grimm, Things to Do in Salem packs all the information you need for the perfect trip to the witch capital. Choose your accommodations from a great list of hotels, inns, and Airbnbs. Fill up your itinerary with attractions, shopping, and events. Pick out the perfect restaurants for every meal and book a tour to get you familiar with the area. Heck, you can even plan your wedding if you're so inclined. This year, Things to Do in Salem even has a fall guide for if you're itching to visit before Halloween season is over. The fall guide includes over 10 years of Elise's research in the best Salem has to offer, October events for 2021, a full copy of her workbook, and a discount for a virtual tarot reading. This guide is a whopping 35 pages of trip planning perfection, now available for only $25. Find the guide in the shop section of the site. Personally, we used things to do in Salem to plan our Salem trips even way before we met Elise, and it's been an invaluable tool in getting the most out of every visit. Make sure you head over to thingstodoinsalem.com today to make your witch city dreams a reality. Welcome back. When last we left you, John and Elizabeth Proctor, George Burroughs, and several others had just met their fate in the third round of executions of the Salem witch trials as this uh, hysteria really kicks up into a... um, I don't know, into berserker mode, Carrie? Well, uh, first, Elizabeth Proctor was sentenced, but not executed at this point because she was pregnant. Um, if you were pregnant, you got a stay of execution. Of course, that's right. But yeah, uh, this, this started to really kick it into high gear. The day after this execution, as I previously mentioned... Uh, so I get a sense of the pace. Do you know how long has passed from, say, Bridget Bishop to John Proctor's trials? Bridget Bishop was in June... And the Proctor execution, along with Burroughs and others, were mid-August. So it's a hot summer. Yeah. George Jacob Sr.'s granddaughter, Margaret, the next day recanted her testimony against her grandfather and George Burroughs, but it was obviously too late to be of any help. Yeah. What are you doing? I don't know. On September 9th, the next mass trial took place, this time of Martha Corey, Mary Eastie, Alice Parker, Anne Pudiator, Dorcas Hoare, and Mary Bradbury. Two things. A, another Dorcas. Mm-hmm. And B, can I presume Giles Corey is in the crowd just like, burner? Well, he was already arrested at this point. Oh, so no. So no. One in of- Salem jail going, burner! <laughs> One of the witnesses who testified against Martha Corey was Edward Putnam, who stated that, among other things, Anne Putnam had often complained to him of being afflicted by Corey. With the accusation of Corey, the Putnams continued to establish their power in the town, as because she was a full member of the church, this would prove that they could successfully attack anyone who doubted their motives and authority, as Martha herself had when she publicly came out against the trials. Right, and as John Proctor had. Yeah, so judgment, guilty. 
we we might remember that Mary Eastie was the sister of Rebecca Nurse, who had already been executed for witchcraft. As a part of a respected family, some people did come to Eastie's defense during the trial, like John and Mary Arnold and Thomas and Elizabeth Fossey, who testified to her good behavior while incarcerated. Eastie herself filed two petitions during her trial, the first in tandem with her other accused sister, Sarah Cloyce, asking for specific witnesses and the disavowal of spectral evidence in the trials, <laughs> and the second after Eastie's conviction, which is described on historyofmassachusetts.org as a remarkable and very moving plea to the magistrates, not, behalf of, not on behalf of herself, but on behalf of the other accused witches who had yet to go to trial. Hey, you guys, could I have this witness and this witness, and also, could you throw out your case against <laughs> me? Just all of it. Well, again, it's something that's very tenuous, the spectral evidence thing being allowed in, so... But if Might as well try it. It can't be that tenuous if it's the only thing involved here and it's the caused... The hysteria was so deep that it just wasn't enough to be tenuous. Like more than a dozen deaths at this point. Mm -hmm. The second petition that Mary Eastie had delivered on her own behalf was quite long, so I won't read the whole thing, but it's worth quoting for it, so I'll do that now. Quote, I petition to your honors, not for my own life, for I know I must die and my appointed time is set, but the Lord, he knows it is that if it be possible, no more innocent blood may be shed. Again, extra words. Yeah. And like all run on sentences. The Lord above, who is the searcher of all hearts, knows that as I shall answer it at the tribunal seat, that I know not the least thing of witchcraft. Therefore, I cannot belie my own soul. I beg your honors not to deny this, my humble petition, from a poor, dying, innocent person. And I question not, but the Lord will give a blessing to your endeavors. Despite this, Eastie was did found it, it guilty. <laughs> She's found guilty. And uh, she was sentenced to become the second person from her family to be executed during the trial. <sighs> Mary Warren had been the chief accuser of Alice Parker and testified that after Warren's father failed to harvest Parker's crop of hay as he'd promised he would do, Parker came to the Warren house and demanded he do it. And then after this argument, Mary's mother and sister became ill and her mother later died. Lots of things happen after other things. I know. I, I don't even know, like, how soon after, you know? Wouldn't you be embarrassed? <laughs> So your testimony is you did a shitty job and then he yelled at you? He didn't do the job and then she yelled at him and then people died. Two like different different things. All right. Warren, Off with their heads. Warren also stated that Parker had attended a devil's mass in Reverend Samuel Paris's pasture with 30 other witches and had tried to get her to sign the devil's book by threatening to stab her. I'm going to stab you. You touch this book. You t you hear me? Listen to me. This is like um, when you go to Dare in fifth grade, you become very afraid that drug dealers are going to stab you with a heroin needle and make you addicted. Isn't that what happens? It hasn't happened to me yet, but it's literally <laughs> something that I would go to sleep afraid of when, in like the fifth grade. Poor baby Sean. Like anyone's going to come to 11-year-old Sean and, hey, kid. Ugh. Parker was also accused of drowning several people at sea, obviously in the guise of her specter, including specifically one Thomas Westgate and crew. 
She had also apparently told a woman named Martha Dutch that her husband, a mariner, would not come back from his voyage alive, and when he didn't, this was seen as some sort of witchy prophecy. It was certainly enough to get her sentenced to death. God, so he's flying back from like a doubleheader with the Rockies. <laughs> what did he play in the outfit? Was he was he a left fielder? No, a, a sea mariner. Oh, not a Seattle mariner. Ugh. Seattle sea mariner. Huh. I wonder if that's the thing. No, I don't think that's the thing. <laughs> I think probably a lot of sailors leave from Seattle. Maybe. Historically. Anne Pudiator was another woman first accused by Mary Warren, and Warren told the court during trial that Pudiator had afflicted her by biting, punching, and choking her, and ding, 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 you guessed it, trying to get her to sign the devil's book. Sign it. Sign it. Hey, look at this. Or at least touch it. You don't want to get stabbed, do you? I'm not saying I'm going to stab you, but sometimes people get stabbed when they don't touch. Come on, just touch the book. (laughs) Warren also insisted that Pudiator was responsible for a man named John Turner falling out of a cherry tree, which severely injured him, and that she had also been responsible for several deaths as well as afflicting the other girls. Pudiator was found guilty, and though she filed a petition with the court days later, declaring some of those who testified her were uh, against her were known liars. These people had been formally whipped as punishment for these kinds of transgressions. The court did not overturn their ruling and upheld her sentence of death. Abigail Williams, and by the way, by this point, she had kind of disappeared from the proceedings um, around June, July. Oh, did she, it, did she it stop getting fun? Uh, did it stop being fun murdering your neighbors? Not Abby? sure what happened to her. I know. Betty Paris went off to live in an, another area with different family. I don't know what happened to Abigail Williams. Most people don't. Um, it seems to me more like Anne Putnam Jr. was like the main instigator for most of the time. But Abigail Williams is always the one remembered because of the crucible. Right. She had claimed that but- Dorcas Hoare was the first witch she had ever seen, even before Tichuba. And Hor ended up being one of the few to confess in prison. She gave her confession to a man named John Lovett, who had been visiting his grandmother, Susanna Roots, um, who had also been imprisoned and was awaiting her own trial. John Lovett. <laughs> I saw you smile. Jonathan testified uh, to the confession at Hor's trial, and she was found guilty, but apparently not sentenced to death because she confessed. It's weird how it worked. Uh, she stayed in prison through the end of the trials, but died in poverty in 1711. But she made it out. Yeah, of the trials, yeah. Mary Bradbury was the last to be tried on September 9th and the second from that particular trial to escape execution. Her original accusation stemmed from a feud between her family and the Carr family, which included Anne Carr Putnam, one of the most prolific accusers during the witch hunts, and mother to another one, Anne Putnam Jr. The feud had begun many years before, uh, when Mary had passed on an offer of marriage from George Carr and instead chose to marry Thomas Bradbury. This is a this is a Game of Thrones situation. This mm-hmm. is a Starks and Freys. Mm-hmm. The Bradburys were respected members of the community despite the interfamily squabble, with Thomas's mother being a direct relative of Elizabeth I's Archbishop of Canterbury, and Mary's father being a powerful man with many deep connections as the representative of Ipswich on the general court. 
Emerson Baker wrote in A Storm of Witchcraft that, much like with Rebecca Nurse, the accusation and conviction of Mary Perkins Bradbury, the wife of one of the leaders of the colony, was a clear sign that the Salem witch trials were unlike any before in Massachusetts. They demonstrated that the trials were political as much as legal and religious proceedings. And they also, this is someone of, of some standing and some connections. Um, that can only go so far. We can only go so far up the food chain before someone's going to put the kibosh on this whole thing, right? We're getting there. <laughs> Despite testimony that Mary was a charitable person given to acts of generosity to the sick and poor, it was hard to counter the negative testimony at her trial, including that of George Carr's son, Richard, who would literally not have existed if Mary had married his father, but never mind that. He was <laughs> carrying on the family drama. Richard attested that Mary had transformed herself into a blue boar that attacked his father's horse one Sabbath, causing George to fall outside of her home. She was also accused of causing the death of John Carr. Only William Carr emerged from his family to try and help Bradbury, going against his fellow Carr's testimonies, but it wasn't enough. She was found guilty. A petition did come out soon after, signed by 118 locals, and perhaps this was enough to save her, or maybe uh, her attachment to some of the leaders of the colony, because she did escape death. But it's not certain how this happened. There are no real contemporary accounts to detail how she managed to do this, even though she was found guilty and she didn't confess. Um Again, maybe her husband was able to maneuver this due to his political connections. A hundred something people has to be some percentage of the population, right? This is a small village. It's definitely a sizable chunk. Before his wife would face her own execution, Giles Corey was to face his trial. But he flat out refused. He just refused to stand trial. You know what? I don't feel like it today. That's kind of it. Um, he did initially plead not guilty, but he basically took the equivalent of pleading the fifth of uh, during the day. Um, it's called standing mute in the Times. When asked if he would accept a trial by a jury of his peers, stubborn old Corey simply refused to answer. Because his superpower is being an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> According to History of Massachusetts, English law at the time ordered any prisoner who stood mute to be tortured in an attempt to force a prisoner to talk, a tactic known as pain fort et dur, which I'm sure I'm saying wrong. It's French. It translates to strong and harsh punishment. <laughs> sure. The exact torture procedure consisted of stripping the prisoner naked, laying him on the ground, and placing a board with heavy stones on top of him. The weight was slowly increased over the course of several days until the prisoner yielded. Just like completely horrific stuff. Days. The use of this particular procedure may have been influenced by a letter Thomas Putnam wrote to Judge Samuel Sewell that reminded him of the murder Corey had committed years before and had never been properly punished for. Mm. Historians tend to believe that because Corey would never have confessed, he knew he would be killed either way, and he refused to submit to a trial because without conviction, his estate would still pass to his grown children instead of being claimed by local authorities. So he's just like, if I can get them to kill me yeah. before I say guilty or not guilty. Mm -hmm. 
I think I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. If you were convicted of witchcraft during the trials, all of your assets would be seized by the court, distributed through the town or whatever. Looking at some of the folks that were executed, that's a lot of goods and a lot of land. And some possible motivation there. Mm -hmm. Almost as if there were possibly other reasons these people were accused rather than pure religious fervor. Sure, get that Putnam Tavern, carve it up. Giles Corey was the first and only person to endure pain fort at Dürer in colonial America, and the torture occurred starting on September 17th in a field on Howard Street near the jail where Corey was held. For more on this location, by the way, check out our episode Haunted Cemeteries, Part 1. That's true. Corey was laid on his back with wooden boards placed on his chest, and a series of rocks and small boulders were laid on the boards by Sheriff George Corwin to increase the weight pushing down. This continued for two days. And when we talk about rocks and small boulders, like how much weight and how big are these rocks? Pounds and pounds. I mean, you know, I don't, there aren't any like reports of exactly the weight, but it's enough. It's enough to be painful. During the two days of his torture, he was excommunicated by the church with the argument that he was either guilty of witchcraft or suicide due to his choice of enduring the torture rather than entering a plea. So even if he wasn't guilty of witchcraft, he was still killing himself somehow. I can't imagine he was too concerned with the news of his excommunication at that point. No. On the 19th, he was uh, asked three times to enter his plea. But each time he replied, more weight, more weight. Corwin took him up on this, adding heavier rocks to the assortment and at times even standing on Corey's chest himself. Witness Robert Califf said, in the pressing, Corey's tongue was pressed out of his mouth. The sheriff with his cane forced it back in again. Piece of shit. Gruesome stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Some accounts report that Corey's last words were his request for more weight, though it may have been more rocks. Some others state that he said, damn you, I curse you in Salem. Uh, Again, see Haunted Cemeteries Part 1 about this latter possibility. It's a uh, better story ender. (laughs) Corey's chest did eventually cave in crushed by the massive weight he was subjected to, but his stubbornness won out in the end. His estate did indeed pass on to his two sons-in-law in accordance with his will. Corey's body resides somewhere in an unmarked grave within Howard Street Cemetery. You gotta take your hat off to the guy. He was um, a pain in the ass to uh, his neighbors and his uh, and everyone around him. He was a terrible husband who sold his wife down the river. Uh, he a was murderer. Probably a murderer. Um... <laughs> But God damn it, when it mattered, he just, uh, he, this was a guy who could take everything uh, and just sheer spite mm-hmm. uh, carried Powered him through. Powered by spite, for yeah. sure. Not love, of, not love for his sons, I'm sure, no. but just, just sheer spite, um, uh, you know, got them their inheritance. The last mass trial occurred on the day Corey's torture began, September 17th. This was the trial of Margaret Scott, Wilmot Red, Samuel Wardwell, Mary Parker, Abigail Faulkner, Rebecca Eames, Mary Lacey, Ann Foster, and Abigail Hobbs. You know, when you're doing this many people <laughs> at the same time, 
I'm starting to have a hard time believing you're really, really giving each case the time it deserves. Yeah. In the interest of time for us, I will concentrate on those found guilty. Scott, Red, Wardwell, and Mary Parker. Margaret Scott was most likely born in England to the Stevenson family and eventually moved to Massachusetts Bay, marrying a farmer in Raleigh named Benjamin Scott. He died in 1671, leaving her with three surviving children and a very meager estate. This reduced Margaret to begging for help, much like the reviled Sarah Good. Most of the files relating to Scott's case are missing, and as a result, she has been called one of the most obscure victims of the witch trials. However, to me, it's actually a little more personal, and I think it's a good example to that um, the madness of 1692 is a lot closer than we all think. A good friend of mine, Anna, is an actual direct descendant of Margaret Scott, along with the Proctor family as well. When I discussed Margaret's case with her, she too noted that Margaret's particular story is extremely sad because she was elderly and homeless. For a community that prized their Christianity, you would think that they'd have been kinder to Margaret, but that tends to be the case a lot of the time, isn't it? This hypocrisy of religion. And it was also, they were so, the Puritans were so much about, you know, you're supposed to kind of toil your way through the drudgery of this life, and then eventually you you, you get your reward, which will be like slightly better, yeah. <laughs> incrementally better. Um, so the idea of somebody, and by the way, if you're you're a woman whose husband dies or you don't have a husband for whatever reason, I don't know what recourse you have in this time except begging or barely any, you yeah. know, like so, other family if you have any, right? So. But still, it's the idea of like, oh, you're just sitting there and begging other people for their money. Uh, probably didn't um, rub well against the Puritan sensibility, right? So it's probably really hard to get by um, shaking a cup at that time. Yeah. One really thoughtful quote from my friend Anna is something that definitely made me think. Uh, she said, I went to Salem in 2019 and also visited their memorial to leave an offering. It's amazing to be connected to history, even if it is horrible history. It's even odder as someone practicing witchcraft. These are not necessarily magical people. If anything, they were likely extremely religious and conservative, but they were persecuted for something that I can now do freely, and that's kind of amazing in its own way. So I think that's something that it really does get me about this story. Maybe that's why I feel so close to it even without the kind of personal connection that Anna has, because it makes you really not take religious freedom for granted, even if you're not a religious person. And um, it makes me grateful that even a quirky, strange person like myself nowadays generally has the privilege to not be sentenced to death for being quirky and strange. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not even just about religious freedom, but just the freedom to be weird or yeah. the, the freedom to be disliked, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like the opposite of a popularity contest, and if you lost... You lost everything. Yeah. It's not certain exactly what happened at Scott's trial, aside from some testimony against her, along the same lines of her getting into arguments with people who later blamed this for their misfortunes, you know, the typical, my cows died after she yelled at me sort of thing. But she, too, was sentenced to death. For Wilmot Red, aside from the afflicted girls, there were only a few witnesses that showed up, including one Charity Pittman, 
who accused Red's servant of having stolen some linen. Allegedly, accused his servant of having stolen. Woman is a woman, but yes. Accused. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought. I know. I always thought it was a man. I was picturing Red Fox. I think so. (laughs) Um, So she apparently might have sent out her servant to steal linen. Okay, but that's not witchcraft. No. Allegedly, when Red was told that they would go to Judge Hawthorne to get a warrant for the servant if the linen wasn't returned, Red stated she quote. Wished that she might never mingjer, which is urinate, nor kaker, defecate, again, if she didn't leave, and that shortly after that, the woman became ill with distemper of the dry bellyache, which continued for many months. So that's the witchcraft part. She said, I hope you don't piss and shit ever again. And, and then, then the woman did. Yeah, she got real constipated. This seems to be a really potent example of how the interpersonal squabbles really escalated into the trials, into like assisted murder, and how many people took advantage of the hysteria to get rid of people they just didn't like. Red was found guilty and sentenced to hang for possibly making someone constipated. Samuel Wardwell was one of six men killed during the Salem Witch Trials, that includes Giles Corey, and he was the last man to die. It's not known who initially accused Wardwell, but it appears he it appears he did confess quite early on to witchcraft, stating he'd signed the devil's uh, a pact with the devil during a dark time in his life. <laughs> it was a bad time in my life. I decided to sign the pact with the devil. I'd just gone through a really bad breakup. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to a lot of hair metal. Mm-hmm. As you do. And doing blow with the guys down on, uh, uh, I don't know. The bridge. Santa Monica. <laughs> Uh, and Wardwell also confessed that he told fortunes and dabbled in folk magic. He also said that he did sign the devil's book and was baptized by the devil in a river. Again, it's really reminiscent of actual Christian ritual. Wardwell probably thought that confessing would save his life, much like it had others. That's what I was going to ask. Is this like a tortured confession or is he just No, he's like, oh, yeah, I did it, yeah. His wife and daughter Mercy also confessed in a similar fashion after being accused. While sitting in prison, Sheriff George Corwin, uh, another bona fide piece of shit, showed up at the house and confiscated most of the Wardwell estate, including goods, farm animals, and crops. This is he. He's he comes like from the set of the field where he was jamming his cane into Giles yeah. Corey's mouth, and he just starts. Oh, I'll take that chair. I'll uh, uh, take that bookshelf. And our friend Alan is actually related to him. Yes. N- I I wouldn't want to be. <laughs> no. Not 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 a great guy. The whole family. I mean, Jonathan was on the the judges panel, but yeah, not great. Unfortunately, at his trial, Samuel Wardwell immediately recanted his confession, appearing to want to clear his conscience. I mean, I don't know why. It feels like a bad move. If you've done it already, you might as well go on with it. It's not going to... Nothing you can do is going to help you at this point. Just just hope. You just got to hope for the best. Yeah. And Wardwell had a large group of witnesses who testified against him, mostly to the fact that he would tell fortunes and read palms, which is pretty witchy activity even nowadays. Sometimes the fortunes apparently would even come true. Like with a young man who was told he would be shot with a gun and fall from his horse, and then he was shot with a gun and fell from his horse. 
This sounds like the witchiest person so far. This sounds like a guy who maybe reads a palm. Yes, exactly. At the end of Wardwell's trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. Last to be sentenced to execution in this trial was Mary Parker, not to be confused with Alice Parker. Few records of her case exist, much like with Margaret Scott, but it seems that she had been a respected member of the community, and it wasn't really clear why she was targeted by accusations in 1692. Uh, despite having a distant cousin who was accused of witchcraft 30 years before, it probably didn't have a bearing on her case, like with closer relatives of accused witches, like Elizabeth Proctor. Um, this was far enough that it probably didn't do anything. Only two people testified against Parker during her trial that we know of. Mercy Wardwell, the daughter of the aforementioned Samuel Wardwell, and William Barker Jr., Mercy stated that Parker was a witch like her. Oh, this is in the course of her, like, cover-your-ass confession. Mm-hmm. It's likely to get some of the heat off of herself. And Barker Jr. was another accused witch who had also tried to throw the spotlight onto Parker, saying that they had banded together to afflict girls together, I guess. I don't know. Wow. That's really, you're really at the, at the end of your rope when it's like, what did that four-year-old girl just say? Uh, me too. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Even this meager testimony was enough to damn Parker, and she was sentenced to be executed. Here are the fates of the others from this specific trial who were not eventually executed. Abigail Faulkner was convicted and sentenced to hang, but escaped the gallows, much like Elizabeth Proctor, due to her pregnancy. Rebecca Eames and Mary Lacey, who confessed and were sentenced to death, but managed to survive due to the timing of their eventual execution. Anne Foster, who was thrown under the bus by fellow accused witch and her own daughter, Mary Lacey. Uh, she was found guilty, but died in prison before her execution, like Sarah Osborne had. Her own mother. Yeah. And Abigail Hobbs, who we previously mentioned, had confessed and pointed out others like John Proctor and George Burroughs as guilty of witchcraft. Uh, she was eventually granted a reprieve. Those who arrived at Gallows Hill on September 22nd, however, would enjoy no such rescue. Martha Corey, Margaret Scott, Mary Eastie, Alice Parker, Ann Pudiator, Wilmot Red. Samuel Wardwell and Mary Parker all ascended the gallows and faced their deaths while declaring their innocence, but to no avail. Nicholas Noyes, the Salem Town Reverend, and another certified piece of shit, remarked, quote, What a sad thing it is to see eight firebrands of hell hanging there. These would be the last executions of the Salem Witch Trials, though this wasn't known at the time. Sure, you got some pregnant ladies. You're just you're waiting to, to hang. <laughs> yeah, can't wait till they pop out those babies so we can throw some nooses around those necks. So, Sean, what finally brought about the end of the hysteria? Oh, I know. Should I, should I tell you? No. <laughs> this is a, a hypothetical. Um, okay. It then I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't immediate. Uh, one of the beginnings of the end was soon after the final execution on October 3rd, 1692. On this day, the father of Cotton Mather, Increase Mather, love the naming conventions in this family. <laughs> yep. Uh, he's possibly the most influential minister at the colonies at this time, and he's buddy of Massachusetts Governor William Phipps. 
basically came forward and publicly condemned the use of spectral evidence. Pretty much what the whole trials were based on. Afflicted people saying invisible spirits attacked them and stuff like that. What they've already hanged 18 Mm -hmm. men and women on. Mm Mm-hmm. Within the week, Phipps decided that this increase guy was onto something, and he ordered that no spectral evidence could be admitted going forward in the trials, which completely hamstrung the afflicted girls' testimonies. Boy, this is is awkward, because the cat is out of the bag on those 18 dead bodies. 19 plus Giles Corey being pressed to death, 20. Perhaps the final nail in the coffin was Phipps' own wife, Lady Mary Phipps, being accused of witchcraft herself in October. Oh, yep. That'll do it. Yeah. And was this from the afflicted girls? Was this like... I believe so, yeah. The governor starting to... um... I didn't find any, like, specifics on it, but it was like, she was accused too. So, so, like, the governor's starting to become unfriendly toward the witch trials, and and the girls think they can win that one? Exactly. I mean, when it's your own family, it's a lot easier to go like, whoa, 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 hey, now, whoa, absolutely not. By the end of the month, Phipps had prohibited further arrests, releasing many of the accused witches, and formally dissolving the court of Oyer and Terminer. A superior court was established in late November to attempt to try the remaining witches, with Judge Stoughton ordering the execution of all who were exempted by pregnancy in January. This this guy is like the worst piece of shit of all. Wait, but they just they, but the evidence they were tried on doesn't hold water anymore. Well, Phipps held firm and denied this order too, causing Stoughton to leave the bench. That month, almost all of the remaining prisoners were released due to their arrests being based on spectral evidence. Tichiba was released and sold to a new master, and the final stragglers were released in May of 1693, specifically pardoned by Phipps. The years that followed were those of shock and PTSD. The first calls to justice for those accused and executed came soon after, with the first public declaration coming a- against the law at the time, which prohibited publishing about the trials. Um, <laughs> Thomas Mall wrote in his book, Truth Held Forth and Maintained in 1695, that it were better that 100 witches should live then that one person be put to death for a witch, which is not a witch. This sounds a little familiar. Uh, because it's the basis for our like legal code? Yeah. Despite it being post-trials, Maul was imprisoned for a year for publishing this book. Wow. Yeah. In December 1696, the general court ruled for a fast day on January 14, 1697, to atone for the sins committed during the trials. Cotton Mather published his Wonders of the Invisible World, and Robert Califf published his response of collected correspondence, court records, and petitions, which he cheekily titled, More Wonders of the Invisible World. <laughs> the real wonders. <laughs> Petitions were filed with the Massachusetts government in the early 1700s to get convictions formally reversed. Um, This was passed in 1711, but these were for survivors, so they didn't have that black mark on their names, Mm -hmm. not for the ones executed. In 1706, Ann Putnam Jr., one of the most prominent accusers, publicly asked for forgiveness when she joined the Salem Village Church saying she had been deluded by Satan into denouncing innocent people. Her membership and apology, it seems, was accepted. 
Boo. Yeah. Not good enough, Anne. No, literally hang her. Yeah. In 1957, many of the executed victims' convictions were finally overturned, though due to weird phrasing, um, this accidentally left out Bridget Bishop, Susanna Martin, Alice Parker, Wilmot Red, and Margaret Scott. And one of those women just got... Like, isn't like an eighth grade class getting her her pardon as we speak or something I think like it was that? an accused witch or someone who had died in prison or something like that. Yeah, we talked about that recently. The official memorial in Salem was constructed in 1992, including a ceremony with speakers like Arthur Miller and Elie Wiesel. On Halloween 2001, with a proclamation by the governor, all of the victims were finally proclaimed innocent. The site of Gallows Hill, a mystery till 2017, was recently finally determined using old maps and documentation, as well as ground-penetrating radar technology, and the area, known as Proctor's Ledge, was created a memorial that year, which you can now visit. So why did the Salem trials happen, the Salem Witch Trials? There are a lot of theories. Uh, but I'll chat about one in particular because it's so pervasive nowadays and has really captured the imaginations of many. Is this ergot poisoning? It's ergot. <laughs> okay. This was first put forward in, seven, in 1976 by Dr. Linda Caporeal, which is interesting, I'm uh, who hypothesized that the trials occurred after an outbreak of rye ergot. Ergot is a fungus that forms hallucinogenic drugs within bread in the form of lysergic acid, LSD. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, which can obviously affect the minds of those who eat it, causing effects like paranoia and hallucinations, twitches, spasms, cardiovascular trouble, and stillborn children, I guess, you know, if you're pregnant. Ergot also thrives in a cold winter followed by a wet spring, which some historians claim were the circumstances in 1691, which would have affected the rye harvested for 1692. Yeah. There's a lot of debate over the theory. According to Britannica, many social psychologists insist that the actions of the girls can be attributed to social and political unrest and that ergotism doesn't factor into certain social aspects that could explain what really happened. Yeah, that's when I hear that, my initial thing is like, it, do, it just doesn't explain it as well as these girls being psychopaths <laughs> because... Um, Yes, they are spasming and all that stuff, but it's happening whenever things aren't going their way in the courtroom. Like, it all seems so nakedly conscious and planned. Yeah. To me, it's too pat of an explanation that doesn't take enough into account the other factors at work that we've discussed over the series. Uh, the storm of witchcraft that we've referred to. That includes the fears of Native American attack, terrible weather interpersonal politics, and the boredom and hysteria of a core group of girls. Uh, we've talked about this before, but mass hysteria is contagious psychologically. See our Hysterias episode for more on that and the dancing plague and all that craziness. We've even talked about a few, if you remember our time slips, the, the Versailles mm -hmm. time slip. Folia de. Folia de, where just two people, uh, Barney and Betty Hill, where just two people can kind of... Um, 
cajole each other, yeah, yeah con- convince each other that um, something really, really crazy is going on. So if that can happen with two people, uh, if you've got a whole village of very superstitious people. You have a lot of people living in paranoia and just misery of the conditions. And I really think you can't discount the boredom. Like, it really hit me when we went to Salem recently. We went back to the Witch Museum and they're talking about the day-to-day of the girls and just, I mean, you know, the the dads or the, the men of the house, they would run the town and they would be going places and doing things and, and harvesting or whatever. If you're a, a, a woman and especially a young girl, all you're doing is sitting around the house, reading the Bible, churning butter, mending shirts. It's a miserably boring existence. So... This certainly brought some interest into their lives in a terrible way, but they also had control. And um, I can't emphasize enough how little control women and young girls had over their own lives and their own bodies and their own selves, not to mention other people. So to, to have a court of men hanging on their every word so powerfully that you can see people physically being killed because of the power of your testimony. It's addicting, I'm sure, for some people. Are you saying Ann Putnam was a tiny Puritan Linda Tripp? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I am. (laughs) She's just bored, so let's ruin some people's lives. I think that's part of it. I don't think that's how she thought of it. I don't think that's how she thought of it. But once you get a taste of power after being so powerless, it can be addicting. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Thanks again to our sponsor for this episode and this series, Things to Do in Salem.com. That's Things to Do in Salem.com. Go and check them out for all of your Salem travel needs. Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. And um, we want to extend a special thanks to our newest patron, David Radomsky. Uh, thanks for joining us, David. And if anybody wants to um, spend a little, more, a little bit more time with us every month, we've got content coming and more content coming absolutely as the winter hits we're definitely adding more and more mini shows more content basically once we get past our wedding reception and honeymoon we are drilling into this thing we've been planning a wedding for two years as we've been getting Uh, this podcast off the ground so man i'm tired of getting married uh yeah there's gonna be a (laughs) glut of content coming because we're gonna be bored pretty soon and that'll be fun for you guys so join us at patreon absolutely See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. And if you'd like to check out more of Kyle, uh, he has a YouTube channel called Music is a Verb where he talks about pop music um, in a smart way. It's very refreshing. This has been a production of Longboy Media. Boy Media.